What's the history of censorship and book banning in America? And there's all of these anxieties, right, about kind of prostitution, lust being um, enlisted by these tawdry materials, kind of great fear of master masturbation among youth, about sex before marriage, about abortion, um, and about the use of contraceptions. And so I, I, just to, I'm sorry to interject. Yeah. You said great fear of masturbation among youth. How would they even know this? Is this something that is discussed? Well, because they look a... at well, so Anthony Comstock clearly has his own obsession with his own sin, shameful past um, in these <laughs> in these solitary act, um, a mini Comstock law. So there's sort of both federal authority and state legal authority to patrol the mails, to patrol bookstores, to raid publishing houses. Um, to in America? Stop. In America, yeah. From Is the, the <laughs> you know, eight, 1873 till, 19, till the early 1930s. Um, this is sort of standard practice. Did you know the irony that Fahrenheit 451, a book about book banning, was once banned in schools here in our country. And did you know that an 1873 act by the U.S. Congress that enables censorship of information about sexuality, about abortion, and even contraceptives is still on the books. It's never been repealed and is still federal law, albeit one that is thankfully seldom enforced. Hey there, news peelers. Today is April 22nd, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peel into history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the peel.news is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Earlier this year, a school board in Tennessee voted that is, its 10 board members unanimously voted to ban a Pulitzer Prize-winning 300-page graphic novel about the Holocaust from an 8th grade curriculum. The title of this book is Mouse, and it's by Art Spiegelman, who recounts the experiences of his Holocaust-surviving Jewish parents in Nazi-occupied Poland and later in Auschwitz. In the book, Nazis are depicted as cats, Jews as mice, and there are pigs, dogs, fish, frogs, and deer that are meant to portray different nations involved in World War II. The Board of Education of a county in Tennessee was apparently concerned about what it cited as vulgar words and subjects they believed to be inappropriate for 8th graders, including sex, violence, and nudity. Of course, by now, most of you have heard of this news. But did you know how we got here? I mean, how do we ban books in America? What about our freedom of the press and our freedom of speech? Does that integral pillar of our democracy, the First Amendment, not apply to books in schools? Is there a First Amendment exception when it comes to materials deemed as obscene? And who is to judge what is obscene anyway? And when did book banning and censorship start in our country? Are they political byproducts of the conservative far right and the liberal far left? Or do they have deeper roots in our history? 
To better understand all of this, we spoke with Professor Brett Gary of New York University, NYU, who teaches in the Department of Media, Culture, and Communication, with an emphasis on cultural battles over censorship of artistic expression, sexual information, and narrative representations of the nation's past. He's the author of Dirty Works, Obscenity on Trial in America's First Sexual Revolution. It's a 2021 book about U.S. censorship battles from the 1920s to the 1950s, in which he explores how civil libertarians, birth control activists, and feminists, journalists, publishers, public health activists, and the ACLU struggle to curb cultural and sexual censorship. To learn more about Professor Gary, his academic work, his other books and publications, visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Gary and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Gary, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Um, Professor Gary, before we delve into the subject of banned books in schools, please frame U.S. censorship in this historic context for us. I'm sure censorship has always been around. So what is a good point in our history to begin the conversation? about censorship. Okay, thanks, Adele. Um, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here and, and to talk about these issues. So I, I think, you know, one of the things that I would say about thinking about censorship in, in American culture, uh, it really takes off in the post-Civil War period. Post-Civil War. Are, okay. Yeah, there, there are um, common law, sort of measures in place before the Civil War. And there are, there, there are you know, various censorship practices. In fact, the most important of those prior to the Civil War is, is the censorship of abolitionist newspapers and the bans on them in Southern states. But oh, course, censorship, yeah. as we think about it, you know, kind of the banning of books, um, especially books that deal with kind of sexual matters or political matters, um, it's really a post-Civil War. Uh, it really grows in the post-Civil War period. And there's a, there's a vice society movement that takes off. And it's, you know, it's quite interesting. And, you know, I can go into considerable detail on this, but, but I think there's a lot of things that are happening in the post-Civil War period, right? One is there is a kind of um, tra- dramatic transformation of the cities with a lot of immigrants coming in. A lot of people leaving kind of rural areas and farms um, and kind of much more supervised smaller communities to unsupervised lives in the cities to work in factories or to work in larger businesses. Are these immigrants considered to be more liberal than uh, Americans? Where are these immigrants coming from? Are they Irish, Italian and Jews and Russian? Yeah, Irish and Italians and Jews. Uh, yeah, so they're, they they bring different patterns with them, right? Mm-hmm. So so the there's sort of there's two movements, right? There's kind of the domestic migration of white um, sort of native speakers, native English speakers from farms and rural areas into cities, and that produces a kind of cultural cultural transformation and cultural drift. And then there's immigrants from abroad, right, who are um, producing these kind of interesting cultural transformations about who, uh, about family size, right? And so so among the things that are going on, right, is there, there is- Family size, um, you mean they have bigger families? Immigrants have much bigger families and, and white middle-class and upper middle-class families are shrinking. They're shrinking throughout the 19th century. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and there's a kind of, you know, it's a, it's planned, right? People are sort of learning what they can about 
uh, birth control and, and contraceptive devices and they're, and they're using them. So one of the things that is one of these tensions is there's this perception that white middle-class and upper middle-class women are, are guilty of committing race suicide, right? That they are, that they're not doing their duty to their families and the nation and the race um, against these sort of waves of immigrants coming in who are bringing their foreign practices um, with them. And so one of the things, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about this, but one of the things that the vice societies target, and they are these anti-vice organizations and they're, they're um, you know, sort of founded by the um, YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, um, by the Women's Christian Temperance Unions and other organizations. And they're aimed at restricting the flow of information um, about birth control and, and contraceptions. And so that's- So by race suicide, uh, were they suggesting that white women are not having enough kids? Is that yes. it? Yes, they're not doing their duty. Oh, hence why contraceptive information becomes yeah. important and controlled. I see, I see. So, ahead, that's, so that's one strain. Another strain is there's a kind of explosion of new popular culture forms. Um, the rotary press, right, becomes more efficient, uh, cheaper. It's able to crank out more materials. Um, and, and, and so as, as happens in any kind of popular culture form, um, there are materials that are sort of aimed at kind of lowbrow, lower common denominator tests, taste. And so there's this sort of explosion of, of kind of blood-soaked adventure stories and police gazettes that are selling tawdry stories about sex crimes and other forms of, kind of popular entertainment. And then with, with inexpensive, less expensive and more widely reproducible photographs, there's the kind of explosion of French postcards as they're called, which are photograph, you know, they're postcards of nude women um, and some postcards. Wow, of, we had that back then? Yeah, yeah. By the 1840s and 1850s, they're kind of ubiquitous. And, and so one of the leaders in the, in the anti-vice society movement, um, and, and he's a crucial figure who I'll talk about um, named Anthony Comstock. He's a, when he's in, when he's in the um, civil war, right. And in his ranks of fellow uh, soldiers in the war, he's appalled by the amount of pornography that these guys are looking at. Um, <laughs> and so after the war, he leads this, this vice society movement. He's be, becomes kind of the national leader of the, of the anti um, vice movement, but, but so there's all of these, and you know, there's these fringe postcards and then there's a kind of growing body of, um, sort of underground, um, pub, black market publication of pornographic classics like Fanny Hill or, um, the writings of the Marquis de Sade, right? So, so there, and, and those tend to be for a little bit more expensive taste. So there's those issues, right? And then there's a there's a there's an explosion of in venereal disease. Um, there's a kind of explosion in vice districts, prostitution in the cities, dance halls, alcohol, um, and kind of newsstands, bookstores, and other places where people can buy these French postcards or this underground pornography or these police gazettes. And and there is the sense among the kind of cultural elites and people like Anthony Comstock and others. They're probably freaking out. They are freaking out. There's this yeah. really morally polluted environment as they see this, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Sex is on display. Um, vulnerable, unsupervised youth um, are, are, you know, they're kind of vulnerable to the prey of, of people in the, in the vice districts, to prostitutes, to confidence men and others. Um, and there is also this perception, right? Not only that upper and middle class, upper class and middle class married women aren't reproducing at the rates that they should be, should be, but that their daughters, right, as they move to the cities, are also kind of loosened from the moral constraints of the family and the church and the local community. So this so is like 60, 70 years, even before women win the right to vote. This goes yes. back. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. 40, 50 years before. Yeah. Um, 
Right, but they're they're sort of off to new urban spaces and all of the lures. So something like Sister Carrie, right? Um, uh, that that novel, um, Sister Carrie moves through the streets, right, of of the city and and encounters these kind of new threats to her um, her purity, right? And 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 she's lured into them. Um, she's lured by them. So books like that, right, become top objects of um, concern. And so, so there's a kind of, you know, there's kind of polluted environment and there's all of these anxieties, right, about kind of prostitution, lust being um, enlisted by these tawdry materials, kind of great fear of master, masturbation among youth, about sex before marriage, about abortion, um, and about the use of contraceptions. And so I, I, just- to, I'm sorry to interject. Yeah. You said great fear of masturbation among youth. How would they even know this? Is this something that is discussed? Well, because <laughs> they look at, well, so Anthony Comstock clearly has his own obsession with his own sin- shameful past um, in these, <laughs> in these solitary act. Um, and he is, right, he writes, he's a, he's a kind of very successful propagandist, right, about the, the need to control these materials to the need to is he Is he uh, an official in the U.S. government? He becomes an official in the U.S. government. He is first um, made the executive secretary of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Okay. which is an offshoot of the of the YMCA in New York and and the YMCA and and the um, the different organizations in Boston and Cincinnati and Chicago and Philadelphia the the the, the various anti-vice societies um, in in all of those cities they're essentially established by the wasp elites right by the the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elites in those communities to try to keep, to try to control the sort of exploding world of vice. Um, so Anthony Comstock is, is the executive secretary for the New York Society of, for the Suppression of Vice. And he writes uh, a piece of drafts, a piece of federal legislation um, that becomes the Obscenity Act, the Obscene Publications Act of 1873. It is um, widely known as the Comstock Act. And the Obscene Publications Act of 1873 um, becomes this, this instrument that gives enormous power to postal officials and customs officials. It gives him special power as a postal officer, and it also gives him um, New York State power as uh, law enforcement power. So this guy achieves kind of enormous power to patrol the mails, to patrol what's going on, um, what's coming in through customs houses, what's being published. And that legislation passes with, with essentially no opposition in Congress, and it becomes oh, wow. the model um, for, for virtually every state. Mexico is the only state, New Mexico is the only state that doesn't pass what becomes a, a mini Comstock law. So there's sort of both federal authority and state legal authority to patrol the mails, to patrol bookstores, to raid publishing houses. Um, In America. Stop. Go ahead. In America. In America, yeah. From the you know eighteen seventy three till nineteen till the early nineteen thirties, um, this is sort of standard practice. For 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 my own edification, I just want to know: Is the Comstock Act still law? Yes, um, it's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two two elements of that. It's rarely enforced, right? Yeah. But, it's rarely enforced, but the, and, and so I, I'll talk more about the Comstock, Comstock law because I think it's really important um, about its language and, and, and what it does, but the Supreme Court never overturns the Comstock law, the Obscene Publications Act on grounds of 
unconstitutionality. The Supreme Court holds in the 19th century in, in several cases, and again in the 20th century, that Congress, right, legislative bodies have an abiding interest in maintaining a moral order. Um, and that there is no kind of, uh, there, there is no great interest in sexual materials that are equivalent to you know, political speech. Sexual speech is, is, is always a kind of second order speech. So the Supreme Court um, upholds its constitutionality, but in 1957, I'll talk about this as we get to it. In 1957, the Supreme Court limits dramatically um, the reach of the Comstock law, the reach of the obscenity laws, but they don't overturn its um, constitutionality. And then in the late 1980s, the Helms Amendment is passed, which restricts the use of public monies for um, art materials or sex education materials that can be deemed obscene. And that is the, um, and so that's a kind of both response to provocative art in the 1980s um, and the AIDS epidemic and the need for AIDS uh, sort of sexually explicit AIDS education materials. And so the, the Helms Amendment blocks that as well. So that's the last of the kind of pieces of federal legislation that, that um, sort of expand the definition of obscenity and what can be banned. That is fascinating um, for, for the following specific reason. Uh, as you were telling me this history, I kept on thinking, where's the First Amendment? Where's the First Amendment? But I yeah. think I think you answered it, and correct me if I'm wrong. I want to get this right before we leave this segment, Professor Gary. The First Amendment, the way the Supreme Court set it up starting in late 19th century, 19th century doesn't protect obscenity as much as it does other types of speech and press because, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, sex speech obscenity is not thought to be as important am i saying that yeah. correct yes I yeah you are saying that and i i can i can kind of so so then then books right pamphlets other things are are um adjudicated on the grounds of whether they meet the tests of obscenity right so oh. they're so it's not kind of it's not obscene until the courts right, hold them obscene. And so individual books right, would be challenged on the grounds of their obscenity. And this is what Comstock did very effectively, effectively as he would go into publishers' warehouses and he'd say, we're gonna challenge this book, right? That this is an obscene book. And his, and his successor um, in, in the Vice Society, a guy named John Sumner, who becomes the executive secretary of the um, New York Society for the, the Vice Society, right, in New York. He does the same thing, raids bookstores, monitors publishers' lists, and he says, this is an obscene book, right? Where you are, if you publish this, we'll challenge it. And so there's a real- that gives so much power. So much power and a, and a real willingness for people in the publishing industries um, in the, in, until the 1920s to go along with this. Um, Interesting. Right? Yeah, um, reputationally and otherwise, and also kind of ideas about what constituted valuable, you know, materials of cultural value. But but I want to. This is important. I just I, I'm like I said, I'll I'll geek out a little bit. But oh, I that, love it. Please go ahead. The, the language of the Comstock Act is is really damning, right? And it's and it's also it's Christian theology that's written into federal law. Um, and so what gets defined as, as obscene? It's any work that might produce lust. So, so anything that could arouse lust, right? And it, it also labels any contraceptive devices or information about contraception or abortion as obscene. And so it makes materials that arouse lust and that is so broad. It's so vague. It's so broad. It's so vague. And, and the way that the courts then uh, rule on it and uphold its constitutionality um, allows that vagueness. 
and 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 so so what it also does in the language of the act right it makes birth control materials synonymous with and and the, this language is used in the in the act indecency immorality lasciviousness filthiness vileness right so to, to sounds like something from a church oh yeah it's very much theological right written written into the laws so books pamphlets papers right that that might arouse lust are are uh, uh, drawn into the same law with any drug or medicine or article, whatever, for the prevention of conception or for causing unlawful abortion, or shall advertise the same. Right. This is the language of the act. Um, it it and I think this is really important to how these issues get played out because it's it's both kind of materials that are seen as sort of violating the moral order, right? Violating uh -huh. the kind of sexual order, producing lust, right? Inducing lust um, and any materials that are, that give women reproductive autonomy. <laughs> so, is, I'm shocked. That's so, so ban, right. The kind of ban on, on women having access to birth control is a federal ban starting in 1873. Um, um, you know, and that's not lifted even for married women. That's not lifted until the 1930s. Um, um, you know, as you're telling me the, that um, the Comstock law is still in the books. And, but and you but went, not widely enforced. Not widely enforced, but, yeah. But I could see how it would still be in, in the books because... What politician would want to bother with this? Exactly. It would ruin their political career. It's like, okay, it's not no. enforced. No one is, you know, really knocking on my door to do this, even though it's the right thing to get rid of it because we're now in 2022. I'm not going to bother with this. <laughs> like, exactly. you know, who wants to say, oh, let's get vice, put the vice uh, obscene material back on the streets. No one wants to be associated with that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that, that is really interesting. Um, exactly. So can I just follow up on that quickly? Please do. So what that means, right, there's sort of two, there, there's a variety of meanings, right, is this is the, the way in which cultural elites support Comstock on these laws. So it's politicians, right, it's civic organization, it's church leaders and rabbis, um, judges, uh, librarians, right, and yeah, others. Yeah. And interesting, like librarians don't become anti-censorship people until the 1930s, right? They kind of, there's this shift. Um, oh, um, wow. And, and so there's a kind of a great deal of kind of, you know, political, economic, um, and, 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 and civic support for the, for these laws. Um, and then they're upheld in the courts and they're upheld by a, 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 a kind of language, it's called the Hicklin standard, right? And the Hicklin standard is the, is the legal test of obscenity that the federal courts use until the 18th, until the 1950s. Um, now there are there are particular challenges to it, right? Where judges throw it out, but it's finally not until 1950 or 48 that the Supreme Court throws out the Hicklin test, and so that the standard that's applied, right? So if a book is brought into the courts and the judges look at it, and the jury look at it, right? That the, the standard is whether the tendency of the matter charged as obscene is to deprave and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences and into whose hands a publication of this sort may fall, right? So deprave and corrupt those who are open to such immoral influences and into whose hands a publication is, may fall. So it's really prosecution friendly. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's, there's no need to demonstrate that these materials actually fell into somebody's hands. Um, there's no need to define- Just the potential it. for it. Yeah, to deprave and corrupt and right. And um, so it's a vastly, um, it's vague and expansive and the courts uphold it. Um, um, and right, as you point out, because no, because no legislators are gonna take this on, um, yeah. it, it, it sort of has to slowly move through the courts, right? Challenges um, to this law have to slowly move through the courts and that's sort of, that's the that's the subject of my of my book, um, uh, Dirty Works, uh, that was published recently by Stanford University Press, and 
and, and dirty and, and works. Okay. Dirty works. Yeah. Obscenity on trial in America's first sexual revolution. Wonderful. I'll put a link in it uh, for it in the detailed caption of this episode. Um, why don't we take a short break, Professor Gary, and then talk sure. about censorship of school books? Sure. We'll be right back. Who are Ukrainians? Professor Warner answers that question in season two, episode five. And who are Cossacks? Professor Tutomlu joined us from Turkey to answer that question in Season 2, Episode 3. Do you know the history of wars in Ukraine? To answer that question, we spoke with Professor Stone of the U.S. Naval War College in Season 2, Episode 8. The links for these episodes, as well as the link for our podcast series on post-Soviet states, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with... Professor Gary. Professor Gary, is there a long history of banning school books in American schools? <laughs> yes. Yes. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not just in schools, right? It kind of schools become the Schools become the site for the battles around censorship um, after there's kind of these legal battles over the Comstock laws and its and its attack on serious um, literature. And so a lot of those sort of what the courts need to do over time, right? And they do. And then is there, you know, there's kind of a series of, of battles about particular books, right? James Joyce's. Ulysses. Um, uh, D.H. Lawrence's Lady Chatterley's Lover, Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer, right? Other kind of serious books that, that have redeeming literary value that um, are held obscene and challenged as being obscene. And the courts sort of eventually protect those books, right? Uh, from, from the label of censorship because Go they have- courts. What's that? I'm rooting for the courts. Go courts. Yeah, yeah. The courts become really important in it. Yeah. And there's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of anti-censorship ideology that becomes important within liberalism and kind of legal liberalism and from the 1930s through the 1960s. Is this the right? Warren Court? Yes. It kind yes. of builds to the Warren Court, and then war the Warren Court becomes the like the the symbolic embodiment of this for progressives and for conservatives who hate the Warren Court, right? And they rally against the Warren Court. Um, Eisenhower but, uh, regretted uh, appointing Chief Justice Warren because he became um, sort of a bastion of liberalism. Right. The right, right. The worst decision he ever made, Eisenhower, yeah. <laughs> about, about Warren. Um, Right, but that, so the courts, you know, kind of slowly, steadily create more space, right, for information about humans as sexual beings. Um, and there's a lot of battles along the way, the kind of battles over the Kinsey report on, on sexual behavior in the human male in 1948 and sexual behavior in the human female in 1953, right? And these become these sort of groundswells of um, sort of these battlegrounds over information about humans as sexual beings, about homosexuality, about bisexuality, about ha people having, you know, extramarital affairs. Um, and the courts become more protective and they become more protective on, on uh, you know, sort of grounds. And it was your question about harm. Like what if it, absent a proof of actual harm, how can you say that that's, that something is, um, is harmful, right? Well, and, yeah, we talked about that during the break. Where's the case? Who's harmed by this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 sort of both both lawyers and jurists, right, become more attentive to that issue of proof proof of harm as a due process matter. Exactly. Right. And, and then this is where that. And so what the courts do? There's a kind of there's a that what happens is the development of variable obscenity laws, right? That they protect adults to have access to these materials, right? And that creates like, you know, eventually creates the space for, you know, the kind of explosion of pornography, right? That kind Playboy, of over 18, you. you can have access to this. Um, 
but youth are still protected, right? The vulnerable youth, right? Who's, uh, who, who need to be protected from these materials. The courts maintain a place for um, variable obscenity laws that keep these materials out of the hands of youth. Oh, that's where we get to school books. That's where we get to schools and the courts are really hands off on schools, right? They sort of, they say they, they, they make these local matters, right? In, in, in the 1973 case of uh, Miller versus the United States, right? They sort of say that these things need to be sort of adjudicated a, a, according to contemporary community standards and the, the assumption there is at the local level. And so that's where so many of the challenges come in and, and, and the kind of long history of granting autonomy to local school boards means that um, sort of what is, what wind up in local libraries, in public school libraries, in school libraries and on curricula become these battlegrounds for um, for censorship, right? And the kind of stuff that, but the federal government, right? Quits pursuing things like Lady Chatterley's Lover or Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. Um, they, they'll go after, you know, child pornography and animal torture. Pornography is sort of what the federal government will go after, but anything else. So we have this boom, right? In, in, in the pornographic. Um, but local authority, right? There's sort of room for challenging books at the local. So level. if the federal government sort of washes his hands off of involvement with youth-based uh, publications, which I sort of, in my words, I call them school books. Right. You run into this issue where I'm in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm a seventh grader. I'm reading, I, I call my cousin. In, in Bronx, New York, she or he's reading a book that I'm not allowed to read <laughs> It's cool, right? Yes. Is that where we are still? That is where we are. Yeah, um, there's no, yeah, yeah. Um, what is it now about- they might, be, they might be given the same tests uh, in terms of sort of math achievement and reading achievement, Right on on to to sort of test the schools whether they're adequately um, uh, meeting literacy and math standards and whether they get the federal monies right so yeah 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 but they're not yeah there's no um, sort of prescription of of curricula uh, what is it about school books that riles parents I mean. People just really get fired up about school books. And some of them haven't even read the book or seen the book. Oh, yeah. But yeah. What's, what's um, up with that? Well, I think a lot of things, right? One is um, there's this, I think, widely held perception, not entirely, uh, you know, it's a sort of legitimate perception that information about sexuality ought to be the province of parents, right? That parents ought to ought to be the arbiters of, um, you know, how their children learn about sexuality. Um, and so part of that anxiety is, right, is these sort of decisions are being made that might not be, um, that, that parents might not be in agreement with, that, 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 that you know, a, a, a seventh grade English teacher is, is assigning books that parents haven't read right they haven't thought about and and then it might be you know but kind of more um more open about um more uh amenable to sympathetic to homosexuality all right uh, amenable to sort of teenage sexuality generally right there might be passages in which um you know sort of teenagers engage in sex that and, and so um, I think part of that then is this perception of a lack of direct parental control. Um, I think there's a, there is a kind of anti-public school ideology anyway. Um, yeah, homeschooling I, kids. Are, are these parents winning? Are these parents that are saying ban certain books winning? Especially winning for Trump's uh, presidency. Yeah. yeah, that's a good... I mean, that's a really complicated question, right? There's <laughs> thousands of, 
There's thousands of school districts, right? There's challenges in the last nine months, there's been challenges in like 330 school districts um, to, to books, right? So in some ways, um, in some ways, you know, really conservative parents, right? Or, 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 or really progressive parents, right? Who are concerned about the textbooks um, are winning in, in specific places. Um, we talked about uh, what you were talking about, the sexuality um, related uh, publications. I, I could see how conservative parents would, 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 would be upset about those and act against them. How about liberal? parents are they and and i'm using these words so broadly just yes. what you hear and yeah, yeah i mean we don't need to get into defining them per se but are liberal parents coming out saying certain books um race whatever should not be in, in schools we don't yeah. hear about that as much yeah you don't hear about it as much you heard you know what there are these moments and you know um the adventures of huckleberry finn right oh, that's There's, right that was bad is a book that's been kind of widely um, removed from curricula. Um, that's a classic. It's a classic. It's a classic that's not unproblematic, right? Yeah. And it's sort of, it's, you know, it's, it's an anti-racist book that has a tremendous amount of racism in it <laughs> yeah. to point out the viciousness of racism. Yeah. Um, kind of condescending atti attitude towards uh uh, the African-American. Uh, well, more condescending towards the kind of white working class people who Jim and Huck encounter yeah. on their, you know, travels down the Mississippi. Huck and Jim love each other, um, right? They're, they're, they, they have a kind of a lovely friendship. Um, Jim becomes, you know, Huck's father's a drunk. Uh, Jim takes care of Huck, Huck takes care of Jim. Um, but Huck also, at the very end of the book, sells Jim back into slavery as a joke, right? And it's no oh, joke. That's and it's right. Totally yeah. terrifying. It's totally terrifying. Um, and 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 you know, Huck's kind of moral authority disappears, right? It's fractured. But but I think you know, kind of for for African American parents, for Black parents, like the the use of the N word in that book, right, is. Um, extensive I, I think it's a it's a hard book for teachers to teach yeah um i bet i bet so much for, so requires so much cultural context um, for its time was mark twain's publication of this book revolutionary it was was he forward thinking in in writing it then he was forward thinking and writing he was very critical of his culture and it's and it's casual and it's violent racism um and 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 the way in which the n-word is used as a violent uh form of speech he's very aware of that and he and he is critical of it um another book that's been challenged um lately right and pulled uh -huh. off of um shelves is to kill a mockingbird um right a beloved classic um right and 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 this is a more complicated case. It's again, the use of the N-word. Um, and it's also, there's a kind of concern that, that, that black people in the book are not given enough agency, right? As kind of instruments of their own uh, empowerment, right? And, 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 and so- well, That was it, the point about that time, about that point, location. It's the point of that book. Yeah, that's the point yes. of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then um, you know, it's the sort of the white hero syndrome. I, I run into this a lot in my classes. If I, you know, show a film or something that has the a white hero, that's the immediate like critique. It's like, well, yeah, but <laughs> but, but his um, consciousness has been transformed, right? And and he uses his powers to try to help redress these evils. Um, but there's a real sense out there of you know like who. Who gets to tell the story? Who gets to be the hero? Um, so, to a lesser degree than Huck Finn, To Kill a Mockingbird has been challenged. Um, I recently also heard about another book that just—I <laughs> just find that really funny. Fahrenheit 451 was banned some time ago. Yeah, isn't that ironic? 
That's a book about book. That's a book, book about, about book banning. Yeah. yeah. How did yeah. that happen? I mean, what's the what's the justification for that? Uh, it's anti-authority. Uh, the yeah, wife, that's the purpose of that book. It is the purpose of the book. Yeah, like there, there is this perception of of you know, like you know, word magic, right? Uh, that that if you read it, you'll think it, right? If you read it, you'll become it. So if you read about uh, you know, sort of homosexual desire, you will, you know, that will let loose this sense of. Uh, possibility and, and unleash, you know, homosexual desire. But that so, leaves no confidence for us as humans that we it can leaves make it no confidence for us to. Um, and and this, you know, this was an interesting part of what the court, where the courts moved on this, is they said we have to, we have to recognize recognize the capacity of the mature adult reader, who is, you know rational stable is not going to have their reason or emotions dislodged by reading any particular book one book is part of a much flow, larger flow of cultural materials um, but we we don't accord that same set of assumptions about sort of intellectual competence of young people um, and we okay. ought right there is who this, can go get it on amazon <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just loaded up on their computer. In a exactly. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about okay. the banning of a Holocaust book, the book written by a Pulitzer Prize winning author. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Professor Gary, Art Spiegelman's book, Mouse, was recently banned by a school board in Tennessee. What happened here? Or, or should I ask, how could this happen in America? This is a book by a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and it's about the Holocaust, for crying out loud. What's yeah. happening here? Yeah, that's I, I would say... What's happening there is like like a convergence of forces. Um, convergence and, of forces. So there's several things here. Oh, I think there's a lot of things here, and I I think in some ways it's a kind of it's a manifestation of the of the culture wars about art and 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 literature over the last fifty years, right? And and sort of and 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 I think the the kind of organization of the of the, conservative right, the cultural conservatives have been organizing and fighting these battles for a long time, right? So back in the, in the Reagan and Bush eras, right, it was the American Family Association and the Liberty Lobby, right, the Catholic Church and Cardinal O'Connor was Focus on the Family, the Coalition for Family Values, right, all of these, the, the, the Family Research Council, all of these organizations and leaders who, who really mobilized and organized people to fight these battles. Right, and 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 these battles became um, sort of forms of political identity. They attach people to the Republican Party as the party that would fight these battles. Um, they sort of built a groundwork of of organizations, and uh, they knew how to mobilize right on these issues. So whether it was sort of queer art in the 1980s or um, AIDS education materials in the 90s, right? Or gay marriage in the aughts, right? These sort of, these issues that would mobilize people to turn out to vote, right? That would direct their monies, right? To these organizations who would fight these battles. And, and so there's a history of, of building a, um, a kind of infrastructure, right? To fight these cultural wars. 
And all and these today, cultural, cultural wars that you brought up, uh, sorry for interrupting, but uh, yeah. this really is an important point. Is there any sexuality in this specific book, Mouse? No, there's only nudity. A nude mouse. Well, a nude from the top down. Um, there, how is that even? Is that the uh, reason? Is that the justification for it? it? Yeah, it is the justification. It 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 is an absurd moment. One of the school board members admitted he did not read the book right when he came to the school board school board meeting. Um, oh, I hadn't love even read the book. It. <laughs> the, the concerns were nudity, swear words, and suicide. Um, that Art Spiegelman's mother committed suicide when he was 20 years old. And, and a lot of the book is about her, you know, her profound trauma of, of the Holocaust and the way that she carried that trauma with her. And she just, life became unbearable. And she, and so she killed herself and he deals with that in the book. Um, and so the, the kind of assessment of the school board is that, you know, the kind of the language that's used, the use of goddamn and other things are not appropriate for the children. They shouldn't have to think about suicide and they shouldn't have to see a nude mouse. Um, and, you know, I don't think, nude mouse. Wow. I don't think that this is part of a Holocaust denial strategy. I don't think it is, but, I, I would say this, I, I, you know, sort of doing some background reading on this, that, that there are people who sort of deal with Holocaust curricula in the American public schools. And they say, you can't really assign a book about the Holocaust now that doesn't have both sides. But what's the other side? <laughs> I don't what know. sides? I don't know what the other side is, but that there's some... Who's the idea that the numbers are exaggerated, right? Or I, it's an astonishing, so I, yeah. So I don't, I don't think it's part of a Holocaust denial, but there is this, you know, this sort of, there are 60 some percent of American adults don't know that 6 million people died in the Holocaust. You don't need book reading for that. You can just watch television from time to yeah. time and you'll listen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, okay. but I think that this, what, what I would like to sort of get back to a little bit, right? Please about do. This particular book, right? Is that I think it's part of a kind of a convergence of, of campaigns about what's being um, taught in the schools, in public schools. Um, it's part of a sort of a concerted campaign of action led by, you know, kind of organized individuals and organizations that are that are focused on these issues, the, the Moms for Liberty, the No Left Turn in Education, the Manhattan Institute, the Goldwater Institute, um, Alex Jones's InfoWars, um, and, and uh, Republican politicians, right, are, are sort of, they understand that these local battles about books or COVID mandates or vaccines or masking, right? Or the um, 1619 project that sort of talks about the history of slavery. By, right? by the or, New York Times, yeah. Right, or the critical race theory attacking on that, um, right? There's the sort of ubiquitous effort to ban them. The, the most challenged books right now um, deal with um, queer kids, queer kids of color and trans kids. Um, and so there is a kind of campaign to get these books about queerness and, and queer kids of color um, out of classrooms, right? Out of libraries, out of public school libraries. And I think that for whatever particular reason, um, Spiegelman's mouse just fell into this campaign and it was, it could have been any number of books and I don't know why that one yeah, that's just uh, makes it such a high profile banning um, kind of on the ridiculous side. Yeah. Um, and, and there's other graphic novels, right? That are Yeah, reading. yeah. At NYU, you have a course called Resisting Dystopia. I, it, 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 
the title of the course was really intriguing to me. And as we we're talking about all of this, dystopia comes to mind. So I want to know what this course is about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's partly, that's partly it. Really? Um, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I designed this course. I, I, I've only taught it one time. Um, I taught it spring last year. Um, and I taught and I, I designed it before the 2020 election. Right. So, so I did, who knew what was going to be the outcome of the election? Yeah. I thought for these kids at NYU, you know, who, who come from all over the country and all over the world, and they are, they are lovely human beings. I, I have to say, I love teaching NYU. Oh, that's wonderful. It's they are, they are brilliant, talented, creative, open-minded. They're here in New York and they're here at NYU because they want they don't want the status quo, right? They yeah. want, they do not want the status quo. And, and, um, and so the kind of combination of, of COVID, right? And the kind of disruptions of that and the 2020 election and the global uh, warming, the kind of environmental crisis of the moment and the total incapacity of our political system to deal with it. Um, you know, these sort of banned books things are a case in point. Where are we spending our energy right now? We're spending our energy on, you know, kind of banning critical race theory instead of banning the, the burning of hydrocarbons. Um, it sounds right? funny when you juxtapose those things. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I thought we've got all of these things that are sort of descending on students. Um, how do they deal with them? Right. What, what are some tools, right, that might give them to deal with these sort of censorship attacks? Um, Right, the kind of the triumph of authoritarianism and autocracies, right, in sort of global politics, um, the, the 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 problem of um, a kind of uh, you know environmental crisis that is not being dealt with, the economic inequalities, right, that and 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 that. So I, I thought, well, how have people dealt with, you know, sort of, so one way was, was to talk about dystopian literature, right? It was a way to I sort see. of, let's look at Brave New World and Fahrenheit 451 and 1984 and The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and what, is, what are these sort of dystopian worlds about? Yeah. And, 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 and is there any space, right, in these dystopian worlds for resistance? And Sadly, right, that's part of what makes them dystopian. There's not much space. And, and one of the things that, that I had not thought about until I put them all together and, and, and taught them and thought about it was, is it, in all of those books, they erase human relationships based on love and intimacy, right? There's a kind of, oh. kind of evisceration of, of intimacy and love and fellowship and um, a kind of common, a common interest. Um, I had not thought of it that way. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. And, you know, that 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 is the kind of under, you know, that all of these novelists are sort of understood. That's that. what they have in common. Um, Let's take yeah. a break here. Stay with me and Professor Gary as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Gary, after all we talked about, what do you see as future trends in censorship? Are you going to say it's going to go away? That would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Not the response I wanted to hear. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, well, you know, I think we're going to, uh, in this society, right, we're so deeply divided, right, right mm -hmm. now. I mean, one of the things that we see in Russia right now is like, any journalistic acknowledgement that this is a war against Ukraine or that atrocities have been committed are punishable by 15 years in prison, right? That, that the Chinese government has enormous power, right? To control 
the dissemination of arguments and ideas, right? The, um, anything that's not party authority, right? So that the, the kind of capacity of governments to control the flow of information and ideas, right? And to punish those who violate sort of standards is, is not going away. Those right? two countries are not our model, should not be our model. They are not, hopefully not. You yeah. know, if you get on, if you watch Tucker Carlson on Fox News, like he's, <laughs> he's cheerleading for Putin, right? Oh, the my most wife and I record Tucker Carlson and watch it every day, religiously. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the, the most watched television news program, yeah. right? He is entertaining. So, so, and, and disinformation, right? Sort of the, yeah. the, the kind of the, the digital platforms for disinformation, the capacity to quickly distribute um, false information to, to malevolently distribute misinformation, right? All of those things I think are um, real threats, right? To kind of democratic life. Um, I also, um, I, you know, I would sort of say two things. I have great faith in our kids' generation. I have great faith in the kids who are college kids right now. You see um, signs and, of that in your, at NYU? Oh, yeah, they're just so, um, they're aware of these problems. They wanna fight these things um, and, and, and they will not be censored, right? They will not be censored. So one of the things that I fear, right, is a kind of greater division in our society you know, blue states and red states, right? Sort of educated people moving to Chicago and New York and San Francisco and Seattle and Denver and um, Boston and maybe Atlanta, right? And maybe the kind of Chapel Hill area and, and, yeah. and evacuating a lot of places um, and going to places where there's, you know, sort of the, where they can be artistic and they can they have access to contraception, right? And they have access to abortion and um, they can sort of live freer lives, right? And, the, and they're kind of emptying out in, in other places that are becoming much more restrictive about what can be taught and how people, people's autonomy over their bodies and, and politically how that plays out 20 years down the road when legislative, you know, and the kind of imbalance of population is not, um, is not addressed by um, congressional representation in the Senate, right? And, and yeah. who makes Supreme Court appointments and other things. And, yeah. you know, how much, like the, the... so I worry about that. Um, yeah. But I also, but I also, I have a lot of faith in, um, I have a really, I, I have a lot of faith in these, younger people and their um their passion for freedom right their passion for these things need to be talked about um yeah i love that we will not be censored right these uh it's sort of yeah so i'm i am optimistic um, about young people i am pessimistic about our political culture um what is silver lining about immigration out of states such as California, yeah. which are becoming too expensive, is that they're actually uh, adding some shades to red states as they move to states yeah. like Montana and Utah, for example, the all area around Salt Lake City is very liberal. If you go, yeah. Austin is very liberal. Uh, and so essentially, some of them are turning these um, uh, red states into um, purple states, which in turn may have uh, Arizona. There you go. Arizona actually, we were in Sedona recently for vacation, and we saw signs of that. So, which may impact their. Uh, this is long term, by the way. Uh, this is not. Right. Uh, we're talking about future trends. It may impact their views on censorship and book banning and what have you. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about censorship, particularly book banning in schools, what would it be? One point. Support, support teachers. Oh, you think <laughs> teachers? You think teachers? Uh, Help teachers uh, fight back. <laughs> Help teachers fight back. Do majority of teachers fight back? Do majority of teachers? I think the majority of teachers are, are are right now they're terrified. I think of the banning. They're being yeah, and they're being surveilled. Right, they're being tested on outcomes that they have very little control over. You know, the kind of testing of their students from 
lower income communities are measured against some kind of federal standard. And I think teachers are really vulnerable. They're vulnerable to political attacks. They're vulnerable to firing because they're teaching materials. Um, I think teachers are really under fire. They're kind of like nurses right now, right? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. just, they're living in hellscapes. Um, not all of them, of course, um, but teachers in these communities. Um, both of them. This, you know, both the, the band, the, 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 this sort of band book movement is coming out of Texas. Um, Interesting. And, yeah. So Texas stands out in this band book movement more than other states? Yeah, I mean, you know, Florida has its critical race theory, right? The kind of banning of teaching of other, a lot of places, a lot of places have banned, you know, sort of teaching of critical race theory, which essentially yeah. means, you know, putting race at the center of our understanding of American history. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's right. a, this is a kind of, it's a widespread action, right? That's not going away. Um, that's unfortunate, and we should we should uh, support our teachers, as well as nurses. Both groups work so hard and don't exactly make uh, investment bankers' salaries, right? They certainly don't. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Professor Gary, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? Thank you so much. Thank you, Adele. I enjoyed it. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele the host of the PL.News.